All right. Hello, everyone. <laughs> this is Scott McNamara with Justin Hagel from Old Dominion University. And this is What's New in Adapted Physical Education. I feel like I did that intro a little differently than the way I think I always do it, but cool. That was very enthusiastic. Yeah, it was. I'm enthusiastic this Friday morning at 10 a.m. It's r- r- rainy here. Is it rainy there? Probably not. Not yet. Very rainy. Yes, excited. Got summer vacation going, going to the ocean every once in a while with the kids. Loving it. So with that, we have Dr. Hagel here, who's a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, and and somewhat, I think, becoming a frequent guest. I don't know what frequent means, but um, several times he's been on the podcast. And you've honestly have had uh, one of the more listened to podcasts on my, because I can check kind of the numbers and stuff, where we've talked about inclusion and integration. I think sometimes we get either hot topics or maybe even controversial topics, and, and they, they seem to be the ones that get the most exposure. So with that, before we start talking about Um, some of the new work that you're doing and talking about some of the, even the old work that you've been doing. Can you briefly introduce yourself and your background in APE? And again, just be as brief as possible since a lot of our viewers have already, you know, listened to you and have a little bit of background on who you are already. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, like you said, my name is Justin Hagel. I am a, uh, a faculty member here at Old Dominion University in beautiful Norfolk, Virginia. Um, I focus, as you know, on adapting physical activity research, a lot of it is um, uh, amplifying the voices of disabled people about their experiences within various movement contexts. I'm also the director of a research and training center down here called the Center for Movement, Health, and Disability. Um, And yeah, I do a bunch of other stuff. Yeah. You know, we should briefly mention we had a, a, a really nice, different kind of format. We just did a big podcast on the OSEP grants for master training grants. Um, and we mentioned really briefly in that we had Garth Timeson, Ron French, Manny Felix, Brock McMullen. So kind of we had generations of OSEP grant people on there. With that, we did mention that that grant was only about the K grant that's about the master's program. And I know you've talked a little bit before about the other side of uh, the doctoral training. You want to briefly kind of talk about that program that you have in case anyone might be interested? Yeah, absolutely. So I work with, I'm the co-director of a program that's led by J.K. Young down at uh, ECU at East Carolina University, and we have a 325H grant. And so the H grant is a consortium of doctoral training programs where we have doctoral students, I believe at nine different universities in total, we have approximately 30 doc students that we're training together. And so we do a lot of collaborative activities Uh, We meet every other week uh, via Zoom. We invite a lot of guests to come talk to our students about various things. We meet a few times a year. Last time we met, we met here uh, at ODU and we brought the whole crew together. Um, And we have a lot of excellent faculty from around the country involved, like Marty Block at UVA and Sam Hodge up at Ohio State. And, you know, there's several more and I could spend a lot of time talking about that. Uh, But I just did on one of the Nick Peed podcasts. So I suppose that people could look that up. That's probably recorded on this too, isn't it? Yes. As well as I think we had Sean and um, Marty Block, Deb Shapiro, I think all came on about a year and a half ago to talk about the program. So yes, we definitely have stuff. Just an interesting note on the OSEP grants that there's these different kind of areas in it. So any researchers out there listening, uh, there's kind of a whole bunch of venues uh, for funding there. 
Yeah, absolutely. There's also a D grant, which is like one university or a couple of universities. So those are the three major ones in our field. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm looking at a research one that's in special ed leadership too. So there's a bunch of, there's a whole bunch of different silos in there. Anyhow, totally off topic. Um, so you've been on here and you, we, we've talked about, um, you know, some of your, your work around inclusion and integration and, and some of your thoughts on those things. Uh, you recently had, I think, a really interesting paper come out that was entitled Absent, Incapable, and Normal, Understanding the Inclusiveness of Visually Impaired Students' Experiences in Integrated Physical Education that I think kind of expanded some of your uh, views or some of your thoughts on some of the things that we've already talked about on this podcast. But because we've already have kind of this background knowledge or, or, or conversations um, that maybe some of our viewers know and some of them don't know about inclusion in PE, can before we get into the discussion about some of maybe the extensions on these thoughts, uh, can you talk a little bit and, uh, and describe some of your previous views on inclusion and integration that we've maybe talked about on this podcast? Yeah, for sure. And so I think the key to like this conceptualization of inclusion is that we're conceptually separating integration as a space, so a physical setting, and inclusion as a subjective experience that's felt by the kids that are within that space. And so I think a lot of times in, in PE, education, special education, inclusion, the word inclusion is used for a physical space. So people talk about like, I'm going to go to an inclusive inclusion class and it's kids with and without disabilities together in that class. Um, and I think for me um, and for people that we work with, uh, that definition is, is very limited because it assumes that just because kids are within the same physical space, then that space is of benefit or meaningful or kids are enjoying it or kids are learning. And uh, we find in PE research, especially research we've done over the last seven or so years, that's not really the case. So kids with disabilities or disabled kids, depending on which conceptualization of disability you're coming from and language preferences and whatnot, um, those kids uh, have talked to us a lot um, and told us about how those experiences aren't favorable, but those unfavorable experiences are basically ignored because they're still within that setting that people believe is inclusive. And so what we've done is we separated these concepts. So now by conceptualizing inclusion as a subjective experience, we can then take the conceptualization and apply it to various spaces and ask the question of whether or not experiences within integrated settings or other settings elicit feelings of inclusion, which we use um, feelings of acceptance, belonging, and value to essentially represent inclusiveness as a feeling. And we borrowed this, this was introduced to the field, at least in my understanding from Nancy Spencer's work um, back in like the early 2010s, 14s, 2010s, is that how you say that? I don't know, but I believe Nancy's the first one to introduce this to, um, to adaptive physical activity research. So she should definitely receive credit there. And she did a great job with it. Yeah, she was on the podcast a while ago where we talked about the importance of language and, and different ways that we can use language and disability. And honestly, I found that to be one of the most, like I walked away from that one just being like, okay, I, I can think of things differently. So we're uh, bringing up a lot of podcasts that people can go back in the archives, you know, just smash that subscribe button, right? Um, so, uh, okay, let's talk a little bit about this recent um, article that you, you published, you know, you published quite a bit, but I found this one to be maybe um, just 
has a lot of nuance in it and really getting into the, you know, nitty gritty uh, because you have done a lot around this topic already, right? So it's like, how do we continue to expand on this topic? And I think you have done it very well. So, you know, with your latest article, can you briefly tell us about kind of general broad sweeps of what the purpose, methodology, general findings uh, were for this paper? Yeah, for sure. So this paper, we essentially uh, took some criticisms that we received about some of the prior work we were doing because we had mostly talked to adults and asked them to reflect back about their experiences. Um, and so we wanted to engage directly with kids. And so this project's actually one of us, um, a series that we're about to publish that's coming from um, work that was supported by the Spencer Foundation uh, Research Grant, which was wonderful to have to be able to, you know, conduct this work. And so essentially we talked with uh, 22, I believe it was 22, 22 kids, 12 to 17 years old that engaged in integrated or I don't know if they engaged, they were enrolled in integrated PE classes um, and they were all over the United States. Um, and so we recruited kids from, from a broad uh, collection of states purposely uh, because we wanted to be able to talk, to talk about PE across states. We also had kids who had more and less significant visual impairments. Uh, we didn't do a specific analysis to look at whether or not level of visual impairment had a, you know had any influence, um, but some of that did come through in our conversations. And so, what we did is we we interviewed each of them, uh, myself, Lindsay, Lindsay, and Allie, um, and we also asked them to complete like monthly prompts. Uh, so we put these monthly prompts on Qualtrics, and we sent it to to them each month and asked them to tell us a little bit about PE and what's happening and whether they felt valued or belonging or what meaning uh, might they might ascribe to it. Um, which was fun and an interesting new way to collect more real-time data as they're experiencing it rather than just the one shot of uh, collecting the data via interview. Um, and we also, well, I think that might've been all the data collection. So yeah, uh, basically we centered the analysis around their voices and wanted to hear what they had to say about what PE was like for them. And, and with that, um, if you, well, let, before we get into the findings, uh, which I found to be really interesting, um, you know, you said that you took some criticism from previous work and you wanted to actually get the voices of uh, people with visual impairments that were actually engaged, enrolled in those programs at the time versus 10, 20 years later. Uh, and can you describe the importance of getting students' voices that are currently in those courses and, and getting those experiences rather than those that are maybe 10, 20, whatever amount of years uh, later? Yeah, so, I mean, we've, we've received, for, for the most part, two primary pieces of criticism that, that, we've, that have helped us move what we're doing forward. And one of which is we largely have spoken to adults. And, you know, we usually cap the adults around 35. So they had graduated from the program in the last 10, 15 years. Um, and for me, talking to adults is nice because there's a, there's a, a conceptual separation between their experiences in school and where they are as adults. And so they don't have any like particular feelings about sharing their honest opinion because there's no problem with, you know, being enrolled in the school, right? And so there, there's just a separation. Um, but one of the issues there is that 
you know, PE could potentially change, right? Things can get better, like that's our hope as faculty. And so if we're always talking to people who graduated 15 years ago, then the experiences we're learning about are 15 years old or 20 years old or 30 years old, depending on what level of school you're, uh, you're focusing on. And so we wanted this time to talk to kids that are actually in it at the time so that we can gain some understanding of what it's like today biggest problem with that is you don't have that conceptual distinction. So we were fearful that perhaps we wouldn't get the same depth of data that we got when we talked to adults. Um, we also couldn't get the long-term meaning um, of uh, what, you know, what not engaging in PE might mean over time. But I think still the findings were quite interesting. The other main criticism we get often is we talk to a lot of visually impaired kids and not other kids, not kids without disabilities or kids uh, who experience other types of disabling uh, disabilities. And so that's also changing where we've engaged more with autistic kids. Um, one of our recent former doc students here did her dissertation working with kids with orthopedic impairments. And so we're broadening the uh, we're broader, broadening the populations that we're speaking to as well, uh, which I think also provides more nuance and depth to what we understand about how kids experience PE. You know, your work, when I read it, and I do read most of your work, um, and, and I find that you're kind of, you're, you're trying to get into the complexities of these things. You're, a lot of it kind of revolves around least restrictive environment and kind of the questioning of that. If it is integrated always the best? I think a lot of yours is kind of going towards no. <laughs> but I think some of your work starting to kind of say maybe sometimes, right? It, there's like this there's, that's where the complexity is kind of getting into it. Obviously, you're, you're putting stuff about the experiences, lived experiences, getting students' voices, I think, too, has been a major part of your work. Um, and that's where I really enjoyed kind of reading your stuff and kind of seeing the different nuances. Because to me, a lot of your work is, um, it's not this, I don't think I'm ever going to read your work and say, oh, this is what I need to do now moving forward. Rather, I think you're demonstrating in some ways um, how we need to engage with students to get their voices to better understand what the most appropriate placements are, and then also to question um, inclusion and such for ourselves. But that's what I get when I read your work. But Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Scott. I mean, I, I don't think I would read all of my work because some of it's crap. I don't read all of it. I read all of it. But, but I think... You know, I, I don't know if I think any placement is better than one placement or another. I think like I've been accused of saying like, you know, you don't want kids integrated into classes with kids with or kids with disabilities integrated into classes with kids without disabilities. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Um, I think that what I would like is for when we're making decisions about what we're implementing within settings that we're centering the voices of the kids that are experiencing what we're doing. Um, so I, I regularly make the comparison to like eating at restaurants. And I think currently the model is um, a, analogous, to, analogous, that's not a word. Um, it's similar to if we were to go to a restaurant or look up restaurants and on Yelp, we only got reviews written by chefs, right? And so today we only know about how good we think PE is based on what PE teachers are saying about PE, like their attitudes, which is fine. Like, I think that research has a lot of value and it's, like one of the foundational types of research in the field of adapted PE, 
Um, but I think when we're only focusing on the teachers and we're not focusing on, and we're only focusing on the chefs, then like, we can't really trust what people are receiving. Right. And so like in every other aspect of life, whether it's Yelp, having other people eating the food, review the food or Uber, where like you see the number of stars that somebody gets as a driver, every other aspect of life where we're taking into consideration the service recipients perspective, except for an education where we're like, nah. We don't really want to hear from the students. We want to know, like, what did the teachers feel or, you know, that the peat faculty members. And so I think I think refocusing, especially when we're actually teaching and something I do want to do moving forward is figure out how to more more effectively talk to teachers about how to engage with kids within their classes and use that feedback. Um, and I have some ideas on how to do that. I've been working with Brad a little bit, Brad Wiener, very very little because I need to keep up with them better, but about ways to get it into the hands of teachers. Um, but I think that's that's the future in my view of how we're going to educate kids. It's going to be taking that student feedback, yeah. making assumptions based on bags of tricks and whatnot. Again, I want to get into the findings in a second because I think you had some interesting stuff. I do think the how of that stuff is, especially when because you know we 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 talk about the nuance of what you're doing, and and I think to me a lot of it is. When I, what I get of the practicality of what you do is reflection, reflecting on what I do, reflecting on the things that we're doing. I think all teachers could get something from that. But I do wonder, like, so you're talking about Matt, like large, like, you know, generalizing this at some point or potentially generalizing this. And I do wonder the how, how do I get these voices at a large level or how do, you know, how do I make some type of, and maybe there's not a way to do that. And maybe the key is, is that if we create critical thinking teachers, they're going to find out a way to get the students' voices one way or another versus some cookie cutter checklist or something that we can create. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I don't think we can generalize this because, you know, every kid that I've ever talked to has had their own personal experience within PE, right? And like, I can't tell a teacher in, you know, Virginia Beach here that like they need to do something specific because one of these kids in our study said to do that thing. Like that's, 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 the antithesis of this right but like yeah. I think talking to teachers about becoming more critical and like I this past I think it was December I got to go up to um, work with ICAPE in Illinois like that group this group of AP people and, and May Flavin was uh, the the PE teacher or AP teacher up there that invited me up and she's wonderful and like talking to them and bringing like this type of information to them like it was a really enjoyable experience where I could, I felt like they were really receptive to this idea of like reflection and taking in voice, voices of the kids when making pedagogical decisions. Um, and so like there are strong groups of AP teachers out there. Like I was nothing but impressed by hanging out with May and the IK people up there. Like we, like we went out to eat and like listening to them talk, it's, it's refreshing. You know, it's refreshing to hear a bunch of AP teachers that have the kids in mind. Um, and not necessarily like, you know, trying to prove to other people that they're including kids, but rather focusing on whether the kids feel included, which is like a conceptual turn, I think, that we need to make as a field where we need to stop caring so much about other people feeling like we're, in, we're inclusive and more so caring about whether the kids feel included. I think that's a really good segue because I think there's a lot of things I want to talk about that we're going to talk a little bit in a second about um, this term that's, I think, been brought up in the APA literature and some of your work recently of unintentional harm. 
that we might be doing. Before we get into that though, let's talk, can you give some, again, kind of broad strokes on what your findings were from this study? Yeah, so very broad strokes. So um, basically our first two themes were very consistent with what we found with adults, right? So the first theme essentially said, like the kids did not feel that subjective experience of inclusion, largely because they were removed from like the integrated setting. And so I remember this was an interesting interaction with one of the reviewers who said like, how could you look at the experiences of kids in integrated PE if they're not in integrated PE, which I think is a really good point, but these kids were all enrolled in integrated PE. So essentially they were enrolled in the class and then they were picked up and lifted and dropped somewhere else because they were either an inconvenience to the teacher or the paraprofessional thought they should learn somewhere else or what have you. And so um, largely these kids were reflecting that like these ideas of acceptance, belonging and value were really challenging to even conceptualize because they weren't in the same physical space as their peers. Um, the second one also very similar to what we hear from adults is that like the kids felt like they were incapable to really participate within the class and be successful within the class. And they largely centered that on their visual impairment itself. Um, one of the kids, and I remember talking to her um, quite a bit and enjoying the conversations with her because I felt like I was learning a lot from her and, and her experiences was basically settled on the idea that PE is constructed without visually impaired kids in mind. So how would it be possible for her to have a positive and meaningful experience within that class? Um, I believe she's the one that uh, brought up the word Kryptonian in the, uh, in the class and brought up this concept of like, if every, like bringing up the idea that all the other kids had supervision and those kids just had normal vision, like would they feel included? And it was a really interesting kind of analogy that she was setting out for us. Um, and so that was the second theme. And then the final theme, which was novel to what we had uh, talked to kids about before, um, was this concept of quote unquote being normal and feeling normal and wanting to feel normal. So like a lot of the kids really wanted this concept and feeling of being quote unquote normal. Um, which we found to be interesting. And for some of the kids, especially the kids who didn't need any like accommodations or modifications to participate, the kids with less significant visual impairments, um, they basically said like, hey, I'm a normal guy. Like having a visual impairment doesn't change anything for me. So, you know, I'm good. Like it's fine. There's no difference. Um, and I think that's great. And I think that's kind of a disconfirming thing from a lot of the other findings that we tend to find. Um, but that was really minimal. That was maybe one or two kids, whereas most of the kids were yearning for this idea of feeling normal, but it was unattainable. Um, and like they couldn't feel normal within the class because it didn't seem as though um, they had, they were treated in a way that made them feel like all the other kids. Um, and I think there was at least one kid also who said <clears throat> something to the effect of, if she was treated like all the other kids, that also wouldn't make her feel normal because then she couldn't engage in the activities like all the other kids. And so it was like a double-edged sword. Yeah, I, I, I saw that one and I was actually most intrigued by that one because she said something along the lines of, I wanna feel normal, I wanna be normal. However, if, yeah, uh, if, yeah. if I'm treated normal, I can't engage in the activities because things have to be adapted for me which is a wonderful level of like metacognition or something for probably 
you know, um, high school, what was it high school or middle schoolers that were, uh, these were 12 to 17. Year olds. Yeah. So youth, right. I mean, that's to me, I was not probably able to communicate that type of stuff when I was 14 years old. Um, yeah. but I do want I, that to me, you know, again, if I was going to give that information, even if it was that student in a PE teacher's class, I was wondering how does some, how does a PE teacher take teacher take that information, that particular one of, I want to be treated like everyone else, but don't treat me like everyone else. Yeah. Um, and what would that mean to a PE teacher? And I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, it's such a good question. And it's something that I think we we wrestle with um, as a field. I think that like this word normal is, is, is becoming problematized more often. And I think, again, like we pulled a lot from Nancy Spencer's work, even in our discussion about normal. Um, and I think that with, with that particular concept, like what, what this girl was communicating to me was <clears throat> that the ideal is normal, right? Like the goal is normal, but why is the goal normal? Like, why is it in PE? that kids think normal is the ideal, that that's the goal. And, and I think when we reflect on PE practices, that's what we do. We, we, we assess kids and, you know, maybe we don't explicitly say like your two standard deviations below the mean on X, Y, and Z, but we do, you know, make this placement decisions based on normalized assessments. And we also, you know, we, we have all these different like criteria and such that we communicate to them that they may or may not meet. And so perhaps it's not about, perhaps PE needs to, needs to modify its goal from like try to be normal or try to like meet an idealized body to let's, let's appreciate difference and like different ways of movement through space. And so I think that to me is one of the most critical limitations of PE in general is that there are idealized ways to move and to exist within space. And we perpetuate those, but a lot of kids don't fit those movement like ideals. And why can't we just appreciate that a kid is moving rather than like they need to move in a specific ideal way? I think that probably relates really well in special ed in general. I mean, I know when I was in special ed classes in my undergraduate, I remember the term normalization coming up. And this was, you know, 15 some years ago now. And I remember that coming up and it was just one of the terms that we had to use and, and understand. And that term meant basically making students as normal as possible is what, and that was taught to us in that undergraduate program. So, you know, to me, is this a PE issue? Is it a special ed issue? Is it an education issue? Is it a society issue? I don't know. It's, yeah, it's a good question. I think like when we think about normalization, right, we have like, like when we think of that, we don't ever think about the other side. So we're thinking like, let's make kids normal, like you said, right? Like that normal is the middle, basically. Do we ever take the kid who's excelling and say, listen, man, you're too good, tone it back. We might. <laughs> yeah, but not very often, right? We, we, we yeah. say they're gifted and we appreciate that they're gifted and you keep pushing them. But what we do for the other side, if kids are below whatever we consider normal, all we say is like, get back to normal. And so like, it's, it's also interesting there that like, it's not just normal, it's normal and ideal, right? Like you can be two things, but you can't be that third thing. You can't be, you know, subnormal or whatever phrase people want to use. Yeah. I, well, I think to me, if I was a teacher and I was hearing this, 
I think I can get my mind around it, but I do think the one thing that I think would scare me is I want to still, I want to have high expectations. I want my students to achieve. Does that mean to not push kids, to not kind of make them uncomfortable in alert for learning purposes? And what does the, per, like, when, you, when we, like, expectations and stuff. So if I want to conceptualize and say, I don't want everyone to be the same. I don't want everyone to hit a certain standard, right? Because maybe that's not achievable for them. What does that mean as far as how I then assess learning expectations um, and all of that? And that, that to me becomes kind of then the, the area that is maybe problematic for a teacher that does still want the best for their kids and also wants to kind of acknowledge them as individuals that have individual levels of success. Yeah, I think um, I think the end of what you just said there is the answer, though, isn't it? Like, yeah. can't kids have individual levels of success? Like, do all kids need to meet the same standards? I don't think that they do. I think that there's, I think that it's a, a misconception to say that all kids need to move or perform or excel in the same way. I don't think that means you need you you need to have lower expectations, perhaps in different expectations. Like, could you expect, can you have high expectations for a kid to do something that's different than having high expectations for another kid? Or do you have to have the same high expectations? And so, you know, again, I, and I don't know if this is really at the teacher level. I think teachers are largely like doing the best they can. And like most teachers care about their students and care about like the expectations that they have for them and want the best for them. Like I don't interact with too many teachers that hate kids and don't want their kids to like succeed. Right. So like, it's not, to me, it's not about problematizing teachers because I think they're doing the best they can. I think perhaps we need to reconceptualize what our goals are as PE. And like, if our goal is, or if our standards are like, you know, be, um, have physical literacy and that for some people and not for everybody, but for some people means like being really good at doing motor skills on an assessment. then like, then I question like, why is this assessment the reason, the, the one that we're using? And like, why are the movement forms within that assessment the best for everybody? Like we need to have these conversations more, I think, rather than just, accepting that checklists or assessments are good for all kids. I'm not saying they're bad for any kids. I'm just asking the question, are they, should those be the goal for every kid? I, again, I think you get in that critical kind of reflection on stuff, which is we all need to do. And then us in higher ed, then, you know, I had to unlearn the normalization kind of view, right? Cause that was what was instilled in me. And I was socialized to view as what is best for the kids with disabilities, right? So, I mean, in higher ed, then reconceptualizing PE, but then how do we talk about it? How do we talk about kids with disabilities? And because that, because oftentimes that's when PE teachers are first introduced to these things. And we know that, you know, first impressions are very, very strong. So yeah, I, I think I, I go back to Pete. I think in Pete programs, it's what we're doing to train students that's perpetuating these different ideologies, right? And I also like, I think, and I wrote, we wrote about this in this paper, I think a lot of what we, what we do in higher ed and as academics, you know, can be, there, there can be that unintended harm that we think what we're doing is a benefit for kids, but a lot of times we think it's a benefit for kids without actually asking kids um, or without having any empirical data to suggest that it does help kids. And so we wrote a little bit about how 
you know, we have journals that have these practice-based um, recommendations for quote unquote inclusive PE, but where did those recommendations come from? And like, what are they supported by? And have we problematized them? And so I can tell you that Katie Holland has a paper that's coming out pretty soon here from her dissertation that she problematizes some of these like generic check a box inclusive strategies. And the findings are fascinating. It was one of my favorite papers to read. So that, that should be out here in the next few months. Um, I think it's in the Journal of Developmental and Physical Disabilities, I think. Well, but anyway. I want to talk about that idea of unintentional harm, because I don't think that it's something that a lot of people in higher ed even are that keen on yet um, that we might be doing. Um, I think we're all trying, doing our best. We're all trying to learn to swim and, you know, figuring it out as we go often. Yet we might be hurting kids. We might be hurting future PE teachers, whatever it might be. Um, and, and, you know, can you talk a little bit about that term? I know we've talked about it a little bit already and what you mean by our community providing harm to the students we are entrusted to teach and how we can avoid this harm in the future. Yeah, that was a good line in this. It seems that's probably something that would get attention. Um, but yeah, I think uh, by unintended harm, we basically mean that there are consequences for kids that we don't, we don't see and we really don't ask about, even though we're trying to do the best that we can. Um, and I think for the most part, this, um, this idea of like, of using inclusive strategies is like a very good example of like uh, an opportunity for unintentional harm where we we adopt a strategy, right? Or, or an academic writes about a strategy and maybe that's, you know, conceptually aligned with what they believe or maybe they tried it once with a kid so they believe it works, whatever it might be, whatever the motivation is behind writing up this paper. Um, and these are like the Joe Bird or Palestra strategies papers. Um, that have like recommendations for teachers and not all of them, but some of them are based on like opinion or hubris or, or whatever it might be. And so then teachers are out there and they're reading these documents and there's a paper from the Scott McNamara guy that talks about how, you know, teachers do engage with some uh, of these resources. And then you would, we assume that they're implementing these strategies, right? And they're trusting academics who are writing these papers to guide them correctly and to guide them into strategies that are going to be quote unquote inclusive. And like, for me, like there's harm there or potential for an unintentional harm there because if we don't have data to support the strategy or we don't, we have not talked to the disability community about the strategy or disabled kids have done research about those strategies, then how do we know that those strategies have any meaning? And if teachers are adopting and implementing them without talking to the kids because they believe them to be inclusive because of the paper that they read, then again, there's potential for them to uh, cause some unintentional harm. So a few things on that one, if we now say it and we acknowledge it, is it unintentional anymore? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. So if we've now said it and now is it so now we put the knowledge out in the world. And if you're listening to this or, you know, communicating about this, is it unintentional anymore? And I think there's a question of that. So then we need to continue to reflect and maybe we can't, you know, uh, you know, uh, ignorance is bliss. Right. So now that we're aware of it, uh, we might need to be more intentional to avoid that harm. 
Um, yeah, but, but I don't think this is the first time somebody said this. Um, like most of the ideas that we have, these aren't original ideas. It's just a, it's a, just a recycling of ideas. It might be original to some people listening, though. Perhaps. Um, but I think, like, to me, there's actually a really nice and perhaps easy to implement um, solution for these, like, publications of practice-based recommendations, which is for journals like Joe Bird or Strategies to begin to require a section about how people, like what research, um, what re research informed the strategy, which I think, you know, some of them have introduction sections, right? So perhaps some of that's embedded, but I, I would think having a specific section that somebody can point to and say like, here's the research that informed this, or like a community involvement section, like what uh, autism, like one of the main autism journals does, where, you talk about how you engaged with the community that you're writing this particular strategy for about the development of the strategy. If you include that within these articles, I think it just gives so much more merit to the ideas. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot. Um, yeah, when we're talking about the research that we disseminate, even what I disseminate, honestly, uh, and making sure that there's actual quality and, and, and such to it and, and reflection and, and nuance again, too. I, you know, nothing irks me more when I, when I hear in the academic world, um, alls and must and every time and, and such. Um, it, I want to make one more point, too, about your conversation. And, and I think this goes into literature as well that we're disseminating and people are using it. But you know, some, I, I think we're both like blue collar people, right? And, and sometimes I, when I get into academia, sometimes I get a little annoyed with the, um, how detailed sometimes we get about specific language that we use about defining things. I've been particularly annoyed by um, the adapted physical education, specially designed physical education, um, the terms that we use to define our fields or adapted physical activity more broadly, and I just get annoyed with it because I find that the importance is that we have a shared, to me, there's often a, an importance of us having a shared term that we use so that we can communicate ourselves to people that can provide us resources and, and stuff like that. With that said, I think, and I, I think initially when I looked at the inclusion argument, I looked at it at versus like how you define it versus the integrated kind of world. I kind of initially thought of it like that. Hey, we're all trying to do something good. What's the, what does it matter when we define this? However, I think what you've pointed out is that well, this, this term inclusion has a lot of power to it and the unintentional harm. And you said this earlier is that people often are using this term to pat themselves on the back, get praise from others, or, you know, not always just from like this, but or trying to implement something for other people outside of the disability community to look at them as doing something good. And they often put, I see this term thrown around so loosely that it means nothing. And I think it, and I think the language about it is so important because it has such power in, in what we're doing. And, you know, and I, I, I'm rambling a little bit on this, but you know, what, what are you like, you know, it's just something, I don't know your thoughts on that too. Your thoughts on my rambling. Yeah. I mean, that was a good ramble. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I think, I think that first, like, again, this isn't like the first time this is, this has been said. Yeah. Again, Nancy 
introduced this to APA. Her paper in 2010 really was something that influenced a lot of the thinking that uh, that we've had like as a research group after that. And so I'm very thankful for her doing that work and being able to read that and kind of build upon that a little bit. Um, but I think, and, and before her, other people had, had talked about like inclusion as a subjective experience as well. And, you know, around the world, there's a lot of different ways to use that term. I think the most problematic issue, the most problematic thing to me is when it's used simply to mean a setting or a physical place, because once you ascribe value to a physical place and then people believe that that physical place is is good no matter what right because the word inclusion is good and so like because inclusion is good then that place must be good then anything within that whatever anything that happens within that space it doesn't really matter and that can mean a lot of things that can mean a lot of different negative or marginalizing experiences that the kids might have within that space so you know, I'm glad you see value in the nuance there. Um, I'm probably going to keep talking about conceptually separating integrated spaces and inclusion as a feeling. And I think one of the other aspects that's important is like if you think of inclusion um, as a subjective experience, then it's really not relegated to one space, right? And like then like other spaces can have equal value to an integrated space. Like right now we talk about integrated spaces like it's the most important and best possible solution for kids. But if you think of inclusion as a goal, of feelings of inclusion as a goal, then why not, why not apply that to other spaces as well? And so like one of probably my favorite papers that um, I've done with Wes Wilson, uh, we did that down in Louisiana and we talked to kids who were educated in self-contained spaces and we had them draw pictures and these pictures were you know, enlightening, you know, like the kids were drawing pictures of them being happy in PE and like, who are we to tell them that they don't feel included in PE just because they're in a self-contained space? Like to me, that that doesn't make sense. They can feel accepted and like that they belong and valued within a space if it's not an integrated space. So I think that this opens up a potential to um, equal the value of different spaces, regardless of what they are, whether it's a camp, whether it's an integrated PE space, whether it's a self-contained space, a reverse mainstream space, any other space you want to create, if kids can feel included within them, then I think inclusion can be applied to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, my last kind of question is, uh, you know, I think obviously you've done a lot of work in this space and you said that you're still interested in kind of making, getting controversial, getting uh, nuanced in there not controversial. That's a byproduct sometimes. I'm not controversial, man. <laughs> I am like, I'm just working with kids. People think people could have whatever interpretation they want. That's their business, but I don't view it as controversial. Well, I don't either anymore. With that, what do you see as kind of the future of like, where do you want to continue going in this, this kind of uh, this lane? Where, where do you see yourself continuing to kind of expand on these thoughts? Yeah, so I think for for this particular project, we still have um, we still have a lot of work to do to disseminate the rest of the the data from the Spencer Foundation grant. So that's what our our short term goal is. I think long term, um, and I don't want to give away too much because you know it's upcoming work. But long term, it's going to be working with kids to co-construct um, curricula or training 
in PE for kids, um, visually impaired kids. I think that's the next step, I think. But we'll see. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of fun coming, a lot of different types of work coming. And I don't want to pigeonhole us either, because I think as we continue to learn from the kids and from whatever other data we're working with, like we're we're just gonna we're just gonna keep moving in various directions and with different populations. And yeah, I think it's gonna be interesting. We'll probably keep ourselves busy for another five or so years before I retire. <laughs> People don't know, but yeah, you're still in the young professional-ish uh, uh, realm, right? Don't ask your I'm, students though, right? No, I'm, I'm, I'm about five years from retiring, Scott. People <laughs> don't believe me when I say that, but yeah. Maybe, maybe. It's going to happen. It's going to happen? What are you going to do when you retire? Well, I want to own my own haunted house. Whoa. That's my, that's the next step. See, this is, we're soulmates, man. I haunt, like haunt, like scary movies that's like my if i like want to veg out or something and i'm not a, my wife doesn't like them but like at like if i can't sleep 11 p.m i'm throwing on some weird horror movie and i'm just like vegging out to it so not everyone's like that yeah feel free to you know come down wherever we decide to set this thing up and, yeah know, at the haunted house you know one day very nice five more years 2027 we'll have a haunted house very nice. Well, congratulations on your work and your, um, and I wish you luck with your upcoming goals of the haunted house. So thanks, man. I Would be accessible. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, it'd, be pretty, <laughs> it'd be pretty ironic if it wasn't. Yes. <laughs> um, all right.